0: Psalm 73. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold. For I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They are free from common human burdens. They are not plagued by human ills. Therefore, pride is their necklace. They clothe themselves with violence. Their evil imaginations have no limits. They scoff and speak with malice. With arrogance, they threaten. Their mouths lay claim to heaven, and their tongues take possession of the earth. Therefore, their people turn to them and drink up waters in abundance. They say, how would God know? Does the Most High know anything? This is what the wicked are like, always free of care. They go on, amassing wealth. Surely in vain I have kept my... Heart pure and have washed my hands in innocence. All day long I have been afflicted, and every morning brings new punishments. If I had spoken out like that, I would have betrayed your children. When I tried to understand all this, it troubled me deeply till I entered the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their final destiny. Surely you place them on slippery ground, you cast them down to ruin. How suddenly are they destroyed, completely swept away by terrors? They are like a dream when one awakes. When you arise, Lord, you will despise them as fantasies. When my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. Yet I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will take me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is my strength is the strength of my heart and my portion forever those who are far from you will perish you destroy all who are unfaithful to you but as for me it is good to be near god i have made the sovereign lord my refuge i will tell of all your deeds lord we just ask that you speak to us
1: god we as a people struggle with doubt there's not one of us that has had perfect belief our entire lives in fact, every time we choose to sin, we doubt you, Lord. We doubt your goodness. We doubt your ability to provide for us, God. We're, we as a people need reassurance. We need comforting, God. We go through things that cause doubt. I just pray that in this moment, you'd speak to everyone here who needs a word from you, which really should be all of us, God, including myself. I pray you'd speak today in your name, amen. Amen. So we are... Continuing our series on the language of prayer, we've been praying through the Psalms. We've been learning how we as a people can pray by looking at how the Hebrews prayed when they prayed through the book of Psalms. And there's different Psalms that speak to different circumstances of life. We've gone through praying through fear and anxiety. We've gone through praying through repentance. We've gone through praying through worship and song. Last week, it was so cool to have Emily lead us in worship as we went through the message but we've been learning to pray through our issues and not just bottle up our emotions. Cause like, honestly we do that all the time. Like there's so many situations like in class when you're really having a bad day and honestly you just want to cry or get angry, but you have to hold it together because of social appearances and because you don't want your teacher to get you in trouble. That's how life is. We have to hold it together and we bottle up our emotions, but God calls us to not bottle those things up, but bring those things and lay them at his feet. So, the writer of Psalm 73 is this guy named Asaph. Uh, I hope I'm pronouncing that right. But Asaph was a priestly worship leader psalmist who actually wrote worship music for the Israelites. He's a worship leader. He's a songwriter. And we find Asaph in this Psalm. He's going through a crisis of doubt. Have you guys ever been there? Like, I've been there. Have you ever been through a situation that was so hard that it left you questioning, like, God, are you real? Do you really care about me? Do you really love me? Like, I've heard these things about you, but I'm having a hard time in this moment actually believing that you really do care about me. I've been there. I think we've all been there. I think that's, like, that's like seriously, one of the most universal human experiences is going through that doubt. And that's why Psalm 73 is amazing. I want to, like, bring your guys' attention to something, Okay. I don't know if you guys caught it when Dylan read it, but this is a psalm of a man who's going through a lot of trials and a lot, he has a lot of questions and he's wondering, is God really there? That's in the Bible. Like that's torn, it's, it's, it's a messy, upset song torn from this guy's journal where he's going through this dark moment in life and that's put in the Bible. So somehow people's words doubting God become God's words to doubting people. Do you realize that? God took the angsty poem of this dude who was doubting him and used it and intentionally put it into the scriptures so that we, as people who doubt and struggle, had resources when we do. That's awesome. I love that. Like, I love that the Bible is not just people all the time going, yeah, God is good. God is great all the time. Just believe it. Don't ever question it. There's passages in the Bible with people struggling through their faith, and that's super profound there's passages in the bible where people in the bible are doubting that what the bible says about god is true that's encouraging for us who go through that and the scripture acknowledges that the bible sometimes can be hard to believe for us it includes the experience of those of us who struggle to believe right in there how does the Psalm begin look at how how does the Psalm begin what's the first verse surely god is good He says, surely God is good in the first sentence. And then he goes on in the rest of the Psalm to talk about how he's not sure if he can actually buy what he's selling there. And the Psalm 73 is the story of how this guy Asaph prayed through his experience. And it's super relevant. We've all been there. We've all doubted. And the sources of doubt are super complex. Like you guys probably all have different doubts for different reasons in your life. The source of where those doubts come from, that's different for all of us. And we have this beautiful prayer. It's a huge resource for doubters. So let's, just, let's just jump in. Whether you're somebody here, you've come here and you've got doubts, or whether you're here and you're someone you don't have any doubts about anything, you know what? You will eventually. You'll go through something hard-hitting in your life, and it's going to cause you to have those moments of weakness. So whether you're a current doubter or a future one, let's jump in and see what it might say to us. So verse 1. It begins kind of, it almost seems sarcastic if you think about the context of how this guy's feeling. He says, surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. Surely, surely God takes care of his people. It's almost sarcastic. He begins with like the generic godly statement. And those of you guys who have gone to Christian schools, like you know how this guy's feeling because he knows all the right things to say. Like, if you're somebody who's going through something gnarly, but you go to a Christian school and and your teachers ask you, you know, is God good? You're going to say, yes, of course, yeah, God's good all the time. But the reality is, in our walk with God, don't we have different perspectives coming from different directions? Like, think of it this way, like, isn't somebody who has been a Christian for 70 years and been through a ton of hardships as a Christian, going to think about the statement God is good differently than somebody who's like 10 years old and they've never been through anything hard in their entire life, who says God is good, it's a totally different perspective. It's coming at it from a lack of experience or a lot of experience. It's very different perspective. The core view of the Bible guys, like the main view of the Bible is that God is good. Like if you look at all the stories in the Old Testament, um, the Hebrews, the Jews, they're thinking back to those awesome times where God freed them. I think of Israel being freed from Egypt when God parts the Red Sea. They're looking back and they're saying, God is good. He is good. I remember when I went to Calvary Christian School. Um, we had a guest speaker who came and and he had a little saying where he's like, he was this big black football player, super rad guy, deep, dark voice. And he'd be like, God is good. And he asked us to go all the time, all the time, God is good. And it was, it was super cool, super fun. But for this guy, Asaph, he, he knows he's supposed to say God is good, but, but look here in the next verse, verse two. So he says, yeah, God is good. Yeah, surely God is good. But verse two, but as for me, my feet almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold when I envied the arrogant, when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. So he says that Christian line that everyone's supposed to say with a happy face. Yeah, God is good. But then he says, hold on, let me tell you about what I'm going on, what's going on in my life, honestly. Yeah, God is good, but I'm not sure if I believe it right now. And he uses these powerful metaphors of slipping, of losing your foothold. And like, we can just mindlessly read it because it's in the Bible. Like, oh yeah, he slipped, lost his foothold, kind of biblical, churchy language. But think about it. Like, really think about what he's saying. Like, if you guys were walking on a sidewalk, would you consider, like, if you're walking on the sidewalk and you kind of tripped, would you say, oh, I slipped and lost my foothill or my foothold on on the Rocky Mire? No, you wouldn't say that because you're walking on a sidewalk. So somebody who slips on a cliff, what kind of journey is that? It's a dangerous journey. That's an uphill journey. When... What he's describing is his spiritual walk, and he's saying as a, as a follower of Yahweh, it's dangerous, it's hard. Some of you guys know what I'm talking about. Like, becoming a Christian did not make all your problems go away. Following God, it's an uphill battle. There are challenges and hard things. Sometimes becoming a Christian brings even more hard things into your life. So he's describing his spiritual journey as like climbing this steep mountain, and it's hard, and it's dangerous, and it takes effort, and he has to be intentional about it to actually really follow this God Yahweh that we serve, the journey is hard and difficult very often. So he says, I came to this point where I almost slipped. I didn't, but I almost did. And it's, it's like this image that he uses where he kind of paints what doubt is. He doesn't actually say doubt, but he's describing the experience of someone who's doubting. He never uses the word doubt, but he's talking about someone who tried to follow God, but he almost slipped. He has this moment of doubt. Now, how many of you guys have ever gone rock climbing? Anybody? Yeah, I haven't because I'm not brave. But well, okay, like I'm not talking about like at like uh, like a rock climbing center where, you you know, I'm talking about like you went out in the desert, and you did rock climbing. Anybody? Anybody? It's gnarly, right? I mean, I've never done it, but I've seen videos and it looks terrifying. So in theory, when you're doing rock climbing, you have a plan. Like, you're not just random. You're thinking through every step. It's important that you know where your foot is going to go and where your hand is going to go next. So Asaph, this guy, he knows he's this guy who he's trying to follow God and he knows what his plan is but then something totally unexpected happens something doesn't go well and this guy loses his balance and he finds himself disoriented just like if you were rock climbing and all of a sudden you slipped and you fell and now you're hanging suspended by that harness trying to get your footing back trying to get back on the mountain we all have our way of seeing the world through our life experience But then unexpected things happen and throw us off. Have you been there? Things, everything was going great. Unexpected circumstance comes up and all of a sudden up is down and down is up and you don't even know what is going on in your life anymore. And we ask the question, if God is good, why would this happen? If God was good, why would he allow this to happen to mom and dad? If God was good, why would this happen to grandma? If God was good, why would this happen to me? We become disoriented, hanging and suspended by doubt. So with Asaph, the guy who wrote this, where do we find him in his state of mind? What does he say? He says, I envied the arrogant. What does that mean? He envied the arrogant. He was jealous. He was jealous of prideful people. The next word is key. He said, I saw the prosperity of the wicked. The Hebrew word that he uses for prosperity, it's like one of the most common Hebrew words. What's like the most common Hebrew word? Anybody? The one everyone knows. Shah. Shalom. shalom! Shalom! It you know what it means? It just, it just means peace. Like prosperity. It means, you know, if you're someone who has shalom, it means everything's going good for you. It means you, you have peace in your heart. You, there's things in your life that are going well. So this guy, he sees the evil people in the world, the people who are just taking advantage of other people, they're rich, they're powerful, they're stepping on other people to get to their positions of power. He looks at them and he says, These guys have shalom. What is up with that? Like, I don't have shalom. I don't have peace. My life is a wreck. But these rich people, there's, there's these, there are people out there who are self-promoters. They're self-important. They're prideful. They're always talking about themselves. They treat other people like dirt. They take advantage of others. They have no accountability. They do whatever they want. And they're not only getting away with it, they're thriving in it. Have you ever been in that situation where you're like the person at school who's trying so hard to be good or the person in your family who's trying so hard to follow Jesus and then maybe you've got a brother or a sister or a classmate and they're just making all the wrong decisions. They're going after their flesh. They're doing whatever they want to and your life is miserable and their life seems awesome. That's where Asaph is right now. He's, he's being honest. Look at verse 13 through 14. He says, I thought... God would be faithful to the pure in heart. He says, verse 13, surely in vain I've kept my heart pure, and I've washed my hands in innocence. All day long I've been afflicted, and every morning brings even new punishments. So he's like, Lord, I've been keeping my heart pure. Like, I've been accountable. Like I've been doing all the right things. Like, yeah, I had sins in the past, but I've been overcoming my sins. I've been working really hard on repentance. I've been trusting the Lord. I've been reading my Bible. I've been praying. And now he's asking, is it worth it? You know, I cannot tell you how many people I've talked to who've been followers of Jesus, who've gotten to points in life where they've sat in front of me and they've said, man, I got to the point where I had to ask, was it worth it? Because sin is really fun sin is really awesome. And following Jesus doesn't always make things go my way. Following Jesus isn't always comfortable. Is it worth it? Is it worth it? When you look and you see people who are fully in sin, and yet they're successful. Like, that goes against everything inside us. What we think it should be, to be a christian we think being a christian should make everything awesome for us that's what people say when they give altar calls just give your life to jesus just say a prayer come down the aisle and everything's going to be okay but a lot of times it's not and you might be here today and you're like yeah i follow jesus but it seems like the more i follow jesus the more the enemy attacks me it seems the more i follow jesus the more i have trials and even punishments and and the wicked have shalom they have peace what is up with that Remember, this psalm, guys, this psalm was written by a man going through a trial, and he clearly has some personal thing going on in his life that caused him to question everything he thought he believed. And the Bible doesn't tell us what happened. Like, there's no backstory to this psalm that tells us, like, what happened to Asaph. But he went through some real loss, some real affliction, and some real punishment. And he's saying, Lord, this doesn't match what I say I believe about you. I don't know if it's worth it. If I want shalom, I should just go be like these wicked people because they have fulfillment in their life and I don't. What he's describing is something that's happening in his head, his heart, and his life experience all around him. His doubt doesn't come simply from learning a new idea. It's from a new life experience. It's not that he was following God and then something, someone said something to him like, hey, have you ever considered this? And he's like, oh my gosh, I doubt everything I believed." No, everything was going good. He believed, but then life experience hit. It wasn't a new idea. It was a new experience that caused him to doubt. And so many times that's what causes you and I to doubt. It's not new ideas. More often, it's new experiences that we've never experienced before that are harder than we've ever experienced before. For human beings, doubt comes from all different sides. It's kind of like, think of doubt as like this lake And it's got different streams and different rivers pouring into it. So think of your own doubt. The things that discourage you, the things that make you doubt, you've got different life experiences flowing from different directions into this giant lake of doubt sometimes. When we experience a crisis of faith and doubt, we ask the question, what are my life's experience right now? What's going on? That's what we need to ask. When you guys experience doubt, you need to ask what's going on in my life right now? If you're here tonight and you're experiencing doubt, ask the question, What is going on in my life right now that's causing me to doubt? Asaph had experiences that caused his mind to question what his heart said was true. His mind had been taught to believe that God is good. Guys, doubt attacks the mind and the heart. We as people are complex creatures. We're we're spiritual, we're psychological, we're emotional, we're relational, we're hormonal. And it's good that God doesn't tell us in this scripture exactly what happened to Asaph. Like it doesn't say, yeah, the reason he was going through a struggle is because his neighbor's dog ate his cow. Like it doesn't say that. that would, that'd be strange. It just tells us that he's going through a hard time. And because of that, because it doesn't tell us the backstory of Asaph's doubt, really this story gets to become our own. Because we don't know their circumstances, we can make this apply to us. It's this universal experience of doubt. This prayer that Asaph prays in Psalm 73 can become not just his prayer, but your prayer and my prayer. And obviously, it's an unpleasant experience. But does unpleasant always mean bad? Think about it. Does an unpleasant experience always mean bad? If Asaph never went through what he went through, would we have Psalm 73? Would we have it? No, it it wouldn't be in the Bible, it wouldn't be written. I'm thankful he had the experience because now when I go through similar experiences, I can look at someone who went through it. See, a crisis of doubt can rock our world and throw us into questioning God. And you know, there's some Christian circles where doubt and questions are totally discouraged. There's some Christian circles where basically um, they would say, you know, you should never ask questions. Never ask about the truthfulness of the Bible. Just totally believe it. Just never ask questions about the character of God. Never ask questions about right and wrong. Some of you guys have been in situations where other Christians have responded to you. You, you come to them and you have honest questions, sincere questions. You're like, There's things going on in my life and it doesn't make sense and I don't get it. Can you answer this question? And their response is just, hey, just, just chill. Just believe. Have you ever experienced that? You go through something hard, you have that question, and people are like, hey, you don't need to ask about that. Don't worry about it, just believe. In my humble opinion, as someone who loves you guys, I think that kind of mentality is total nonsense. God does not tell us to never ask questions. Like, I'm just thinking about it. Like, wouldn't it be weird if in my marriage to my wife, anytime she asked me anything, I was like, don't worry about it don't worry about it, just believe me, just believe me. Nope, stop, no, don't even, like, what are we having for dinner? Hey, just just believe me that we're gonna have dinner and it's gonna be great. But last time you took me to a Chinese restaurant, it was terrible, and, and no, just don't ask questions. Don't, don't, Brooklyn, no. That would be really bad. That wouldn't be much of a relationship. A relationship is something where you feel close and comfortable enough to someone to ask questions. Jesus died for you to have a relationship with you, so that you could bring all of your questions and doubts before his feet and let him minister to you. Faith does not, guys, how many of you guys go to a public school? Anybody, yeah? How many of you guys are planning on going to a public college? Yeah? Okay, so in those circles, in the secular environment, what they'll tell you is that faith has to come at the expense of reason. If you wanna believe in Jesus, if you wanna believe in God, that's fine, but you have to throw your brain out the window. You have to throw reason out the window. Paul says this, he says, walk by faith, not by sight. He's not saying that we walk by throwing knowledge out the door. What he's saying is we walk by faith in what we can't see and not by the seeming appearance of things. Now think about this, think about this. He says, we walk in faith, not by sight. So is it illogical to sometimes not walk by the way things appear? by just the way things seem. Think of this. For so many years, when people like Christopher Columbus's time and beyond and before that, people looked out their windows and they assumed the world was what? Flat. Flat. That's the way things appeared. But was it true? No. And so it shouldn't surprise us that faith is not the opposite of reason. Sometimes things are more than what they appear. And so much more the world is built by the unseen force of God who could have remained unseen and unknowable, but instead he broke through by dying on the cross and becoming a man and letting a spirit inside of us. There's so much that we can't see, but God reveals himself to us so much. And so there's, it's not throwing your brain out the door to not just base everything on what you can see. It shouldn't surprise us that faith is not the opposite of reason. Faith is built... On reasonable claims. Our faith is built on eyewitness claims that Jesus rose from the dead. Do you realize that? Our faith, the Bible, the New Testament is built on people who claim that they were eyewitnesses. They saw Jesus rise from the dead and they wrote it down. So putting your faith in Jesus, there, there comes a leap because I can't prove that personally. Like I wasn't there. I didn't see Jesus rise from the dead, but I put my faith, even though I can't see Jesus, I put my faith on the testimony and the eyewitnesses of someone else we all have to put our life stake on something we all have to put our faith in something and it's a leap but it's an informed leap we have those eyewitnesses faith is not the opposite of reason faith forces us to move towards experiences of doubt not with the mentality of like I'm a bad Christian because I doubt. Have you ever felt that way? Like you you feel like, man, because I have these questions, but because I can't just blindly accept things because I wonder, man, I must not be a good Christian. Guys, listen, those moments where you doubt are moments of growth. If you let God work in you through them, do you guys remember growing pains? Like the show with Kurt Cameron, right? No. Does anyone know what I'm talking about? Who's seen the show with Kirk Cameron, Growing Pains, back in the day? Okay, that's not what I'm talking about. Don't ever watch it. It's terrible. Um, who actually has gone through Growing Pains here? Anybody? You know what I'm talking about? Like, you wake up in the morning, and you're just like, what is my body doing to me? Like, why is my body trying to kill me? This is terrible. Like, boys, you, you had it. Girls? I, I don't know. Did girls have Growing Pains? Did you guys ex- Okay. So it's uh growing pains shows no sympathy to gender. It is universal. It destroys bodies. It is evil. <laughs> They're terrible. We have these leg seizures in the morning where we're just like, "Why? Why is this happening to me?" It feels like you're being stabbed in the leg in the middle of the night. It's it's honestly it's it's terrible. It's it's unpleasant. It's unpleasant to grow, right? It's a, it is it's unpleasant to grow like you're never like you're never growing and just like oh this is awesome you're like no this is terrible life why are you doing this to me it involves a lot of pain and guys you may be in a place with your journey with christ where maybe your explanation to questions that you had about god and jesus that made sense five years ago all of a sudden those those explanations don't make sense anymore that doesn't mean that there's not explanations it just means that you're growing instead of you going oh Well, obviously I'm smarter now, so that Jesus stuff doesn't make sense. No, your understanding of that Jesus stuff was elementary. You were younger. You were in children's ministry. You need to move beyond a children's ministry understanding of the Bible and Scripture and grow. It's not that the truth isn't true. It's just that you need to reevaluate the way that you understand the truth. It's not a sign of you losing your faith when you have questions and doubts. It's a sign of you growing. And you will grow if you let God answer those questions, if you bring them to him. You know, for me, like I grew up in the church, pastor's kid. I thought I knew everything. I remember when I was in junior high, I'd gotten to the point where I felt like I understood everything about the Bible. Like just cover to cover, pastor's kid, super just prideful about it. I thought I knew it all. I remember I would uh, sit in my youth group or I'd go to a camp and I'd heard so many Bible studies that I would hear someone teach and I'd just kind of sit back and fold my arms and I'd be like, oh yeah, what are you gonna try to teach me? Oh, what are you teaching on David and Goliath? Like, oh, what's the application? God's gonna help you face your giants. Heard it before, I know it all. Like that's, that's how I felt. But what I didn't realize was there was so much more to learn. I was so confident in my knowledge when really I had like not even a full Dixie cup of knowledge and God had just this knowledge of ocean. That's the thing with us humans, God knows so much and we have so much limitation. The smartest human is a full Dixie cup. I'm just like 10% full, not even, I'm like five, 2% full. I have so much to learn. I have so much to grow. I don't wanna ever stop learning. I have doubts. You know what I do when I have them? I go to the Bible. I go to God's word. I go to people who I trust and love to teach me God's word. And I study and I learn and I grow. I don't let doubts defeat me. I take my doubts to the cross. Guys, we wouldn't have Psalm 73 if he never went through this. You know... One day, the thing that you're going through right now, you're probably gonna thank God for it because you'll be able to see how he brought you through it and how now you're able to help others through it. I wanna read you guys um, this quote from Reiner Rilke, guy from 1903, he's this poet. He wrote this book called Letters to a Young Poet. He's the senior poet writing to this young man who's aspiring to be a poet. He wants to be a poet. So he's writing writing to him and he says this. He says, I would like to beg you, dear sir, as well as I can, to have patience with everything unresolved in your heart and try to love the questions themselves as if they were a locked door or books written in a very foreign language. And then he says, don't search for the answers. And I don't agree with that. I think you should search for the answers. But he says this, don't search for the answers, which could not be given to you now because you would not be able to live with them now. I think that does make sense. The point is to live everything. Live the questions now. If you guys have questions, lean into them, bring them to the Lord. Perhaps then someday in the future, you'll gradually, without even noticing it, live your way into the answer. In other words, we should look for the answers. We're growing and changing, struggling with questions and realizing I may not figure it out for another 10 years. That's okay. Lean into your faith in Jesus in a new and personal way. When you have those doubts, if you can't answer the question, if it doesn't make sense, then trust in what you know about Jesus. And 10 years from then, you'll probably look back and you'll be like, man, that thing I struggled with when I was 15, like that makes so much more sense to me now. And now I can help somebody who's also struggling with that when they're 15. So Asaph, how does he move towards his doubt? Doubt makes our minds doubt what our heart says we believe. So he's dangling from the rocks. He's like, everything's terrible. I tried to follow God. and Now all these wicked people are prospering. What's going on? He's dangling from the rocks. He makes four moves towards his doubt, guys. Look at verse three. Verse three is a confession. He says, for I envied the arrogant. I was jealous when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. He's jealous. Here's what he's doing, guys. He's deconstructing his doubt. You know what I mean by that? Like he's, t- he's saying, what makes my doubt tick? What is the source of my doubt? He's looking at his motives. What are my motives? Is it purely just like I'm this righteous guy and I see wicked people trying and I just have this sense of justice and I just want to see the wicked brought down because I'm just this really good guy? No, that's not what he says. What he says is his issue is jealousy. That's where his doubt is coming from. He has this real raw character issue that's motivating his doubt. Envy envy and jealousy are this negative attitude that comes when we feel like we're not getting what we deserve and someone else is getting it and it makes us just feel all gross inside and we hate that person because they're more successful than us. It's a heart and character issue. So the source of his doubt is not coming from God's lack of power in his life. It's coming from the sin in his own heart. Remember I said doubt is like that lake and there's lots of streams rolling into it? That's the reality. Sometimes it's our sin that's causing us to doubt. We might say, I've been good. I've been righteous. Other people are sinning and life for them is good. I've been washing my hands and keeping myself pure. But the reality is if we have sin in our heart. It's going to cause us to have doubts. And that's where we have to do some heart surgery. When we struggle with doubt and we, and we put it all on God, we say, God, this is your fault. You're not coming through. You're not doing this. We need to ask, is there actually something in my heart that's really the source of this doubt? I say, Absolutely. I was listening to this friend talk about it, and he was saying this. He said when, this is a quote from my friend, he says, man, when I went to youth group growing up for years, it wasn't intellectual objections that kept me from following Jesus. It wasn't like I was sitting in youth group and I was like, I can't believe in a creator God. I can't believe that God created the universe. I can't believe that a God could send a son to die for me. It wasn't intellectual objections that kept me from following Jesus. No, he said, it was the fact that I wanted to live my, wi- my life my way. I wanted to live my life my way. My friends and I got together every weekend and did drugs, drank alcohol and slept together. It was so much fun. I wanted to do what I wanted to do. Following Jesus would force me to have to make a life change that I didn't want to make. So I used my questioning of God as a smokescreen because I wanted to live my wife or my life because I wanted to live my life my way, I would take every opportunity to say I doubted God because as long as I could hold doubt over him, I didn't have to really obey him. Man, are there some of us here who are living in that position? I think possibly. This is a dangerous mind trick we play on ourselves. We, we, it's not intellectual objections. It's that we wanna live for ourselves, And so we come up with all these reasons to doubt God because we know that as long as we can hold that over him, we don't have to really follow him. Look at verse 15. He said, if I had spoken out like that, I would have betrayed your children. He realizes that he's a part of a community, he's this Hebrew guy, he's a part of a church, he's a part of a community. So he's saying, if I had spoken out and said, God, you're not true, God, I don't believe you, all this stuff is terrible, he said, I would have betrayed your children, I would have betrayed all these other people. He realizes his faith is connected to others. And then he says this in verse 16, when I tried to understand all this, it troubled me deeply till I entered, look, verse 17, till I entered the sanctuary of God, then I understood their final destiny. This is so interesting, what does he do? He's facing doubt, he's facing struggle, he's at a place where he feels like his footing is slipping, he's questioning God, what does he do? He goes to church, kinda, he goes to the temple what's the temple back then? Guys, the temple, it's different than our little backyard thing we have going here. Um, The temple was constantly full of worshipers, and they worshiped in different ways. There was people who were singing. There was choirs. There was sacrifices, animal sacrifices to atone for sin. There was actually classes in the temple where people would learn about Yahweh and his ways. There was people who were doing worship services in the temple, and there was people who were praying in the temple. And somehow this, this brings this key turning point for him. He's dealing with struggle and he's dealing with doubt. What does he do? He brings himself to a community of faith. Guys, remember, doubts are not, as a result, a lot of times from learning new ideas, a lot of times they're a result from new experiences. You can't really think your way out of a doubt too often. Because it's not just thinking that brought you into the doubt. It was life experiences. So before you change your thinking, I encourage you, change your life experience. The object of our faith is not a thing, it's a person. I can rearrange the furniture in my head over and over again about my wife. Like I can think different things about her. I can think of, change the way I think about her. I can, like, we, we're mental creatures. We can force ourselves to think different ways. But you know what? Nothing is more powerful than actually going and being with my wife, Brooklyn. And I love to think about her all day. I actually put a desk in my office that she can sit at where like, it's like right across from me. So I can just stare at her all day while we're working. And it's fantastic. Like when I'm not with her, I'm constantly like, I wonder what she's doing. I wonder what she's eating. I'm like, is she having a good day? I'm gonna text her right now. I miss her so much. I love to think about her all day, but nothing replaces actually seeking her out and being with her. Calling her, hey, honey, let's go to a restaurant. Let's go to a date. Hey, let's go home. Let's sit on the couch. Let's watch our favorite TV show let's make dinner together let's hang out. Nothing replaces actual time together Guys, we know that the church is the body of Christ and when we spend time with one another we're not just engaging in like intellectual mind Olympics about Jesus when we spend time together we're with Jesus because we're the body of Christ and we don't know what he happened when he went to the temple we don't know. What changed it for him? He's going through all these struggles. He's going through all these trials and he shows up at the temple. Was it a song? Did he hear a song? And he just, he heard a lyric in some ancient Hebrew song where he's like, oh man, that speaks to me. Was it a message? Somebody was preaching, somebody was teaching a class and he's like, oh man, I needed to hear that. Was it a conversation just with another person where that person steered him to the Lord? We don't know. We're not told. We just know that he had a bad experience that shook his faith. So he went and joined in the experience of what God was doing to find his faith again. Do you have intellectual questions about God? Ask the people you know and love and who study the Bible and they'll help you. That's what we're doing in small groups tonight. You're gonna ask the people who know and love you hard questions and together you guys are gonna sort through them because that's what the body of Christ does. And I guarantee you guys, you're not the only ones who have had the questions that you ask. This psalm is a 3,000-year-old poem, that he's, and he's asking the questions that we ask. God, are you there? Do you care? Will you help me? I don't understand why this is happening. It, it's, it's like, I'm so glad that this psalm is relevant, right? Like we, We've all been here. There's been so many times I've talked with people who struggle and they're asking questions and they're wondering, like, man, like, I thought God was real. I thought He cared, but man, He wasn't there when my parents divorced. He wasn't there when I got hooked on drugs. He wasn't there when my life started falling apart. And I just ask them, I'm like, who are you talking to about this? Your mindset is that God doesn't care. Who are you talking to about this? Are you talking to your pastors? Are you talking to your Christian friends? And they say, no. I stopped going to church and I don't have any Christian friends. Well, there you go. If you're constantly surrounded by people who are preaching to you that God isn't real and that he doesn't care and that he doesn't exist, then that is where your mentality is going to be. You're in a life season where you're not surrounding yourself with the community that loves God, so of course you're gonna be struggling with doubt. If it's dark outside, does moving farther away from the light make things better for you? No. Absolutely not. And so as we go through times of darkness and strife, like move towards the light. Guys, we are the light. Remember, Jesus says, you are the what? The salt. (laughs) Yes, you are the salt. But he says, you are the light of the world, the salt of the earth and the light of the world. You may be in a class setting. I've known students from this group who went to college and they encountered new ideas. Teachers who spoke against God said, all that stuff you learned at Calvary Christian isn't true. And they lost their faith. But what's going on in that situation? In that situation, if you're at a school where they're talking trash about the Lord, that teacher probably has an axe to grind against Christianity. And there's probably a lot of students in that class who also don't really care for Christianity. And you're afraid to say that you're a follower of Jesus. Maybe that's one of you guys today. Maybe in your classroom, maybe some of you guys who are in college, maybe at your workplace, you're afraid to talk about Jesus and your faith, which is a huge part of what we're called to do as Christians. And you're meeting all these intelligent people. Here can, here's a huge problem that can happen, guys. This, this is where it gets freaky, especially if you've been sheltered and in a Christian bubble your entire life, and then you get out of the Christian bubble. You might be in a situation where you meet some really intelligent people and some of them are even better, nicer, more moral people than you are, but they don't believe in God. That'll throw you for a trip. You're like, wait, I believe, in, I believe in the Lord, but I do way worse stuff than these people and they don't believe in God. What is that about? You're not gonna think your way out of that experience. You need to enter into the temple. I know I'm making it like, I know I'm like really hitting this whole like temple thing hard here. It's important. Guys, we don't do this. When we go through doubts, we don't deconstruct them. We don't go to the source and say, why am I doubting what's causing me to doubt? And we don't take our doubt into our faith community. We run from it. A lot of times when people doubt, when they're going through hard times, they run away from church. They don't want to come. Hey, are you coming to youth group tonight? Oh, I'm busy. I got plans. I got things to do. When really, I don't want to come because what I'm struggling with makes me feel like I'll be rejected. And everyone at youth group and everyone at church just has to have it all together. And they have to have no questions and no doubts and no sins. No. Jesus says that this here is a hospital and he's the doctor and the sick need to come to him. We don't come to youth group to talk about how perfect we are. We actually come every week to talk about how imperfect we are and how much we need a savior. So let's see what the writer of the Psalm does next. He says, surely, he's talking about surely, Lord, you placed the wicked on slippery ground and they brought, they're brought down to ruin. What do you say about himself? He says, I almost slipped, I lost my foothold. And he deconstructs his doubt and he enters into the temple. He comes to church. He comes to the community. He realizes, okay, there's huge problems in the world and I have to work through that. But if I compare my foothold to theirs, they're actually way worse off because they reject God all together. It's so important to realize this. Um, Let me find what verse that is. I lost that. I didn't put that verse in my notes, but I'm gonna find it really quick. Look at verse, here we go, Verse 17. So he says, I entered the sanctuary of the Lord and then I understood their final destiny. He says, surely, Lord, he's talking about the wicked people. Surely you place them on slippery ground. You cast them down to ruin. How suddenly they're destroyed. How completely swept away by terrors. They are like a dream where no one wakes up. When you arise, O Lord, you will despise them as fantasies. So here's what he says. He says, he looks at a situation. He goes, my situation is terrible, terrible going through all this doubt and discouragement, then he deconstructs it. He says, what's the source of my doubt? Jealousy. That's the source. My jealousy, my sin is causing me to doubt. Then he goes to church and he meets with people who love God and he's encouraged. And then after deconstructing his doubt, after going to the temple and being with the family of God, he's brought to a place where he looks, he compares and he says, okay, do I have it worse than the wicked?" they seem like everything's going so good, he realizes, you know what, their destiny is hell. Like, they don't have God. Yeah, things are going good for them now, but they don't have God. I have a God who loves me. I have a God who cares about me. It's important to realize this, guys. Culture tries to tell us the opposite of faith is reason. It tries to tell us there's belief and there's unbelief, but that's completely untrue. The reality is, it's not belief versus unbelief, it's belief versus belief because everyone believes in something. The only way you can challenge someone's belief is if you know the belief you're standing on, the belief that you're standing on is superior. Example, Christianity versus um, like creationism, God created the universe versus there's no God and the universe just exploded into existence, which is the primary most common belief. The Big Bang created everything and there was no God involved. Here's my question. Because science would say, well, Christians, you believe in something, but we have science. No, the reality is it's belief versus belief. You have to believe in something. Was I around when God created the world? Was I? Did I see it happen? No. Scientists who believe in the Big Bang, were they there for the Big Bang? Did they see it happen? No. So the origin of the universe from both our perspectives is something we did not observe and we cannot prove so we have to have our faith in something. Does that make sense? Are you with me? Do you guys get that? So for me, when I look at the origin of the universe, I, I try to reason and I think, okay, if the beginning of something I cannot prove, can I, can I prove God created the world? Was I there? Do I have pictures of it? Can I show you? No. No. I cannot prove the beginning of that. That doesn't make sense. Uh, And if I'm honest, as a Christian, I can admit it doesn't make sense that a God who has always existed and no one created him, but he created everything. Does that really make sense to our human understanding? No, that doesn't make sense, honestly. So then let's look at the other side, the Big Bang. In the beginning, there was nothing. Nothing exploded. And from order came, or from chaos, from complete chaos, from complete randomness, came a universe that just created itself out of nothing. Do either one of those things make sense? I mean, as a Christian, I know we're supposed to say, oh yeah, Big Bang doesn't make sense. But if we're honest with ourselves, based on our human understanding, a God who no one created, who's always existed, created the universe. Like, does that make sense? no. Like, to our own human understanding and reason, it does not. So here's what I say. If you cannot prove by photographic evidence the beginning of something, then test it by the outcome. So think of it this way. Big Bang Theory. Order comes from chaos. Do we ever see that happening? Ever, ever, ever. Do you ever throw a bunch of paint buckets against a wall and it creates the Mona Lisa. Do you ever put a bunch of monkeys in a room and have them bang on typewriters and they produce a work of Shakespeare? No. Chaos does not ever produce order. We never are walking down the street and we see new species and life generating out of nowhere. It doesn't happen. There's not a pattern. So scientifically we're saying, okay, this thing happened where chaos produced order and yet it never has happened again it's never reproduced itself now let's think the bible says in the beginning a creator created and from order came more order do we see creation happening all over the place in our world yeah we see people making art people painting people recording songs people making babies like we see creation literally happening all over the place. The world is ordered in a pattern of creation. The Bible tells us that we were created in the image of a creator God. We are creators. Christian created this fire. Trevor helped. <laughs> He's a creator. It's so rad. So, so anyway, that, I went off on a tangent. There's belief and there's belief. It's not belief versus unbelief. It's belief and belief. Are you with me? Yeah? Oh, yeah. All right. You need to compare them, guys. Crucial skills to learn in our culture is to think. You will sink if you don't learn how to think. Seriously, you will sink I'm, I'm not like just saying that because it rhymes As you guys go on in our society, to secular schools, you will sink if you don't learn how to think. And it's not being about a brainiac. It's about learning how to process your faith. There was a friend of C.S. Lewis, you know, the guy who wrote Chronicles of Narnia. His name was uh, Sheldon Vokanen. So good, right? He talks about his conversion to faith. Like he's this college student. Here's how he comes to the Lord. He says, when it came to believing in Christ, there was a gap between what was possible and what could not be proved. It was possible that Jesus was God, but can it be proved? He's saying, I don't know. I, I feel like I should take this leap of faith for Jesus, but I can't prove that he's really... God. So how does he cross the gap? Here's what he says. How do I cross the gap? If I were to stake my whole life on the risen Christ, I wanted proof and I wanted certainty. I wanted to see him eat a bit of fish. I wanted letters of fire across the sky and I got none of these. So I continued to hang about the edge of the gap. But then he said, here comes my second breakthrough. He realizes the position was not what I had grown up believing, that there was only this gap in front of me. Take this leap of faith for Christ. He realized, he says, my God, there was also a gap behind me as well. I hadn't realized the dichotomy. He says, there may not be 100% certainty that the Bible was true, so it requires a leap of faith forward, but I don't have 100% certainty and proof that God is not true. So he says, to deny Jesus would also be a leap of faith backwards. Do you guys see what he's saying? Are you guys, is anyone tracking with me? Or is this like two? Okay, cool, cool. So to deny Jesus would be to take a leap as well. He either can leap forward and accept Jesus or leap backwards, but either way he's leaping in a direction. So this is what he says. He says, I could not reject Jesus. There was only one thing to do. Once I had seen that gap behind me and realized that if it wasn't Jesus, what was my alternative? No God, no moral law, like nothing to stand on. So he says, there was only one thing to do once I had seen that gap behind me. I turned away from it and I flung myself over that gap towards Jesus. It's so important, guys. Anytime your faith in Jesus seems too shaky to stand on, God is calling you to take a leap of faith and you're scared. But if you wanna reject Jesus and leap backwards instead of forwards, what ground will you guys be left standing on? I'm trying to figure out where to wrap up. Just a few more minutes, and then we'll get into our groups. Do you guys like philosophy? Anybody like philosophy? Some of you guys are taking philosophy, right? Oh, yeah. A few philosophy fans. So I'm going to read you guys. I'm going to read you guys a quote from a philosopher, and it's going to be really boring. And then I'll quote a Christian philosopher, and it'll be awesome. Um, This is Alvin Plantington. He's from Notre Dame. He's a philosopher. So he says this. The most horrible kinds of human evil and wickedness are a problem for anyone who believes in God, but they are at least as big, if not bigger problems for people who don't believe in God. You've probably heard people say, if there's a loving God, how can there be evil? There's another argument in philosophy that says that the existence of God proves, or the existence of evil proves the existence of God who fights against it with good. But here's what he says. He says, there can only be two alternatives Can there even be such a thing as wickedness and evil if God does not exist? And we are only here by random chance? He says, I don't see how. This is actually a secular philosopher. And he says, I don't see how how that's possible. He says, an atheistic view of the world has no logical place for genuine moral obligation. The strong eating the weak is completely natural in the animal kingdom. You have no foundation for saying it's wrong and evil. If if a crocodile eats a duck, are you like, that's evil, that's satanic. No. No, you're like, oh, a crocodile ate a duck. Like, that's nature therefore if you think that there really is such a thing as good and evil that is not simply an illusion then you have there a very powerful reason to believe in god that's a philosopher talking it's compelling trying to take god out of the picture while still saying the world has a moral law is like sawing off the branch that you're sitting on it's if you're saying i'm trying to remove god you're gonna be like well then wait where did i get the idea that the world is a just and good place in the first place suddenly the things that outrage you assume that you believe in God in order to be outraged. God says, don't steal. It's his moral law. So if you don't believe in God, you can say like, hey, I'd prefer you not break into my house and kill me and steal stuff, but can you actually say it's wrong without God, without a moral law? How can morality really exist if we're just molecules bumping into one another, which is what secular science says. Like we are the product of random chance. We are literally just atoms and molecules, molecules bumping into one another. So why even care about one another? But in our hearts, we know we're supposed to care about one another. There's a moral law written on our hearts. Annie Dillard had a way more sarcastic and awesome way of putting it. Um, She says this, there's not a person in the world who behaves as badly as praying mantises. So context, she's a book writer. She spent a year living in an isolated cabin from humanity, and she wrote a book about the experience. So she's Sitting in this cabin, isolated from humanity, like watching nature destroy itself. And and she realized like nature is super scary and violent and like unforgiving. The strong devours the weak. So this is her quote. She says, there is no human being on earth who behaves as wickedly as a praying mantis. But wait, you say, there is no right and wrong in nature. Right and wrong is a human concept. Precisely, we are moral creatures then in an immoral world. Or consider the alternative, it is only human feeling that is freakishly amiss. All right, then, it's our emotions that are amiss. We're the freaks. The world is normal. You know what? Let's all go get brain surgery to have our brains removed to restore us back to the natural state of animals. Then we can leave lobotomized with our brains out, go back to the creek, and live on its banks as untroubled as any muskrat or grasshopper. So he's saying, if, that's, if there's really no moral law, let's all just go get brain surgery and we can go out and we can eat one another and kill one another like animals do and not have to feel bad about it. Do you see the point she's making? She's comparing the foothold. She's saying, the worldview of the Bible, you can stand on that. What, can you stand on the worldview that there is no God? Do you have anything to stand on? So many times we can face doubts because the person denying Christianity to us seems so smart. Guys, don't give in. Use your brain, or if you don't want to use your brain, talk to somebody who is using their brain. You're living in a society where you th- you're surrounded by people who think differently than you as Christians. Even sometimes in a Christian school, you're surrounded by people who think differently than you. They don't want to follow Jesus. They don't believe that's the way. They don't believe that's the truth. They don't believe that's the life. You can either constantly be sucked into doubt Or you can learn to compare beliefs and grow final thing look at verse 21 he says this this is so good this is this is just the awesome wrap up to the psalm as he prays through it look at verse 21 he says when my heart was grieved and my spirit was bitter i was senseless and ignorant i was a brute beast before you he says man when god when i was when my heart was grieved i was i was ignorant I was like a stupid animal. I, may, I could make no sense in my life. I looked at my life and I was like, this doesn't make sense. Right there in that place, he comes to this realization. Look at verse 23. He says, yet God, you know what? I am always with you. He's praying through it. He says, Lord, I'm always with you. You hold me by my right hand. Verse 24, you guide me with your counsel and afterward you will take me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire beside you. He says, God, I'm always with you. You hold me in your hand. There's nothing really that desirable about this world but you. Remember, what did he start with? Jealousy. He deconstructed his doubt. He said, I am jealous. That's what's causing me to sin. He wanted what they had. He prayed through it. He took it to God. He compared what he actually had to what they actually have. Footholds, remember? What's he standing on? He realizes he has it better. He says, nearness to God who is committed to me means that I have more than they do. Verse 26, he says, my flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Those who are far from your will perish. You destroy all who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge. I will tell of all your deeds. Guys, this is so awesome. How does he start in the Psalm? He says, sarcastically, surely God's good. Sure, I mean, He's supposed to give the benefits and the hookups to his people, right? Like the people who follow him, he's supposed to bless them. But then it doesn't happen. Something goes bad in his life. Doubt and jealousy strip him down to where he feels like he has nothing. And when he is most humble and vulnerable before God, he realizes I'm just a human who knows nothing. Right when he most thinks God is absent, guys, catch this, right in that moment where he thinks God is most absent in his life, he realizes God has always been there and never left him. God used his trial to bring him to a closer relationship and dependence on him. Suddenly he's overwhelmed with this thankfulness. God, thank you so much for what you've done. The crisis of doubt was one of the best things for him. So how do we pray through doubt? We look for God's presence through what we feel is his absence. Guys, when you feel God is not there, that is where you look for him and you find out he was more there than you could ever imagine. And to me, it just always goes back to the garden of Gethsemane. Remember, Jesus is crying in the garden. Jesus is going through doubt. Jesus knows he's about to be crucified and he's on his knees and he's saying, father, I'm so sad I could die right now. He says twice, father, I don't wanna do this. If there's any other way, he's sweating drops of blood. He feels God's absence. It feels like God is not there. It feels like evil is about to crush him. And exactly in that moment where Jesus feels most forsaken, it's the moment where God is meeting all of us in our need. His death on the cross made a path for doubters to meet the one that they doubt and learn the truth about him so they can doubt no more. In the moment Jesus feels on the cross, God had forsaken him. Father, Father, why have you forsaken me? It was the moment that God himself became God forsaken with us in order to conquer our God forsakenness with his love. Jesus is where we have to bring our doubts, guys. Guys, when you doubt, kneel down and pray and realize Jesus is kneeling beside you. Think back to that moment in the garden when he doubted that things were gonna be okay, when he was scared of the pain. Jesus will be there with you because we will doubt. And when you doubt, you have to remember, I was not here first, Jesus was here before me. Jesus was suffering here before me. In that moment where you feel like, I'm a small human. I have a problem in my life. I'm not sure what to do. The world is really screwed up. I'm really screwed up. I don't know my motives for having these doubts. You kneel beside Jesus because you have to remember you're never alone. When you experience what feels like God's absence, you need to remember that Jesus experienced it too. No one is alone. Someone is on your side. No one is alone. You're feeling all these doubts, maybe even right now you're feeling all these doubts and emotions, you need to realize that Jesus is right here holding your hand tonight, no matter what you're facing tonight. And I know there's people here tonight who are doubting. Jesus is here and he holds your hand and he says, I've been where you are and I love you. He kneels beside you. His heart breaks for all the things that you're suffering through. He has the power to bring you through it. Jesus, we love you. God, I'm so thankful that you are not this God who anytime I experience doubt, you don't just say, hey, shut up and believe. God, you invite me into a relationship where I can pour out my heart and ask questions and bring my doubts and my struggles before you. God, the darkness of my own heart is so just overwhelming sometimes. But God, whenever I bring my heart to you and I I reveal my dark doubts to you and I don't try to hide them, but I'm just honest. I'm like, God, I, I wanna believe you, but I just, this thing happened in my life or this experience happened or I learned this new thing and it's really confusing me and I don't know what to believe anymore. God, you shine your light of truth into the darkness of my heart. And I'm so thankful for that. I pray for the people here tonight who are doubting because of life experiences, because things didn't go the way they thought they would, because hard things happen, because they learn things that are contrary to what you say, because there's people in their life pushing them towards sin and discouragement and doubt. God, I pray that tonight, in our just brief talks of of conversation, going through these questions, that God, you would lift chains of doubt and bring freedom of truth. We thank you, God, that you do not hate doubt. You welcome the doubter. You don't want us to stay doubting forever, but you want us to bring our doubt to you and pray through it so that you can free us and bring us to the truth. And God, I know that process with me is never gonna be done until I reach heaven, and I'm so thankful that you are patient with me. So tonight, I pray, God, that you'd reveal truth to our heart as we talk together and go to your word, and seek out truth from the questions we have. We love you, God, and we ask this in your name. Amen. Amen.